I'm Prime Minister Boris Johnson and you're listening to Brits in the Big Apple with Hannah Young, Consul General. My guest today is Fiona Bloom, a prominent music industry publicist who runs the New York City agency, The Bloom Effect. Fiona has transitioned from concert pianist to radio personality, to record label CEO, through to music producer and publicist for a huge number of impressive artists. In 2007, the same year that she was named top strategist of the year by the National Association of Recording Industry Professionals, Fiona founded The Bloom Effect, a company that's produced over 2000 music showcases and consulted on hundreds of album projects playing a significant role in the careers of over 300 artists, including Jesse Clegg and Wayner. Fiona has an impressive eye for talent and has over the years given New York debuts to some of the most iconic music artists, including one of my favorite bands growing up, Eternal. Fiona, welcome to Brits and the Big Apple. Thank you so much, Hannah. So happy to be here. I love the name Brits and the Big Apple. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are a Brit in the Big Apple. And tell us how you came to New York and maybe some of the roles that you've had uh, over the years here. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, like you'd mentioned, I was a classically trained concert pianist and violinist studying in places like the Royal Academy School of Music and just having really disciplined and arduous lifestyle of practicing eight, nine hours a day. But my dream was always to come to New York because in my mind as a, as a young person coming up, you know, as a youth, it was always the idea of, uh, you know, coming to New York, making it in America, being in New York, performing, uh, you know, at uh, concert halls there was truly the idea that you'd made it. You absolutely had made it. No matter where you were, anywhere else in the world, coming to New York, you made it. So always that was conditioned very early on. Um, but I sort of kept it in the back of my mind. Um, and with being, uh, you know, studying music, I wanted to go to Juilliard. Really, that was it. I, I uh, auditioned uh, and filled out many applications, but I did not get into the Juilliard School. I got scholarships pretty much everywhere else. Cleveland Institute of Music, Peabody, uh, you know, the Sorbonne in France or the Paris Conservatoire. I got accepted into uh, Philadelphia College of Performing Arts and I chose to go there because I thought to myself, well, Philadelphia is as close as it gets to New York. So I ended up in Philadelphia. I was the tender age of 16. You know, I was there from 16 till about 18, transferred then to University of Maryland. Well, to make a long story short, I realized uh, after four years heavily into university music programs, you know, classically trained, I realized that this lifestyle and this path really wasn't for me. And I really, to be honest, felt very burnt out. I was 20 feeling like 50, 20 feeling like I was having a nervous breakdown midlife crisis. So I decided basically to throw in the towel and I hate to even say the word give up because that doesn't really live in my vocabulary, giving up, I don't give up. But I decided I'd had enough at that moment. And I went to Israel, um, chose Israel because I just wanted to discover my roots. I'm Jewish, you know, I'm a British Jew. And uh, I didn't really know who I was, Hannah. You know, I'd been uh, practicing the piano and violin uh, from practically the, the day I left the womb. So I didn't really know my identity. I didn't really know my hobbies or my interests. So really going to Israel was sort of like a coming out for me to sort of a rediscovering or discovering who Fiona was. Who is this shy, timid, 
you know, talented, but uh, a little nervous, you know, young uh, woman that's sort of blossoming into her own, but not sure of just what or where or when. Um, so Israel taught me a lot. And at the time, my parents had taken, uh, my dad had moved to Atlanta, Georgia. My parents moved there. My dad took a job there. And at the time, when I was coming back from Israel, I could have gone back to London and figured out what I would do with my time and my life or start over in Atlanta and figure it out there. So in Atlanta, I got on college radio. I went back to university, uh, took a degree in speech communications, broadcast journalism, got onto the radio, really excelled in radio. And the reason that I ended up in New York was because while I was doing radio in Atlanta and fast becoming a wildly popular DJ, you know, disc jockey, I also was a party promoter. There was a president of a record company, major record company, coming to and from Atlanta, from New York, um, to discover talent, work with talent. And he sort of found me, was watching me in the peripheral, saw me doing my moves, watching me sort of navigate the crowds and weaving in and out of, you know, black culture and Latin culture and all these different communities. And he was so impressed that he came up to me afterwards and said, I don't know if you have a clue who I am. You know, I'm Daniel Glass. I work at Chrysalis EMI. I'm the president of Chrysalis EMI New York. Are you looking for a job by chance? And I was like, New York record company? Yeah, sign me up. And it was sort of like that. It was sort of like not looking back after that. I mean, yes, I had to chase it. It wasn't that easy. He didn't give me his number. There were no mobile phones at the time. This was the end of 1993. So I had his receptionist's phone number. It took me five weeks to get her on the phone, my diligence and relentless calling. And she finally said, okay, when can you come up for an interview? So it wasn't even like I had the job. It was an interview process. I had to pay my way up there, put myself up accommodations wise, uh, which back then was a lot of money for someone like me that was just a party promoter and doing radio because I was getting like seven, $8 an hour. You know, it wasn't very much money. And I was young, 23, 24. So I got uh, the interview, got up to New York. It was a 13 hour interview, literally got there at 8 a.m. I think I finished around 9 p.m. Met everyone from the head all the way down to the mailroom. And I had no clue if I ended up getting that gig or not. Went back to Atlanta thinking I'd never hear from them again, which I didn't really. And then two weeks later, out of the blue, okay, you've got the job, start January the 2nd. And this was literally December the 17th that they phoned me. So I had two weeks to get everything sorted, pack it all up, do a goodbye party, find a place to live in New York and boom, here I am. And that was what got me to New York. Chrysalis EMI, my actual uh, title was um, Director of uh, National Marketing, Street Team Marketing. Uh, I had no clue what I was doing. First time job in the record business. And, um, and I just sort of uh, went in off the deep end and learned as I went. Wow. That's an amazing story, particularly the transition from being the classical concert pianist through to being the, uh, you know, the, the radio host and then right. to get this job. Mm -hmm. Did, were there any, I mean, you rightly say that it wasn't a failure in changing tack, but, right. you know, can you pull any of the strings, you know, the experiences from that earlier, you know, that earlier time to your time now and your success? Yes. I mean, listen, I was, I, I knew straight away from coming out of the womb, I knew that music was my life. Music was my DNA. Mm. Music was 
was my fabric, music was everything, my raison d'etre. I knew it, I knew it from the very beginning. But it's okay if you don't know, it's okay if you try things and, and if it doesn't stick, you, you try something else. You go with your heart, you go with your passion. And what I learned most along the way in my journey throughout all of this is even if you do give up, it's not the giving up that you're doing, it's changing course, okay? Changing course, not giving up, trying something different. That's all it is. Picking up where you left off and trying again. Really quitting is throwing in the towel and saying, I'm done, and literally reside to going to sleep or, you know, going on holiday and taking a break. I never did that. I never took a sabbatical. I never took that time off. So changing course and figuring it out. And the best thing about that is trial and error. And if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't stick, keep trying. There's nothing wrong with reinventing yourself five, six, eight, 12, 20 times over. It really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, the most successful people are the ones that failed many, many times over. Yeah. Um, it's a really important mantra for life and and you are you know the epitome of that tell us a bit more about once you're in New York some of the other roles that you've had because it's a really impressive set of uh you know different different experiences yes thank you for uh acknowledging that um I think I'm a little bit rare in that case because I have had my hand in many many different cogs on the wheel of this uh music industry. So when I started out in New York as a marketing person, um, you know, I learned as I went and I learned pretty quickly throwing into the deep end, obviously. Um, and then from there, you know, uh, that was a short lived job for me. It was only lasting about a year. And, uh, you know, they dissolved my department and, uh, you know, everyone was like, oh no, what are you gonna do? Gonna go back to Atlanta? Or are you gonna go back to London? What and I was like, no, I've got to stay in New York. I refuse, I had a huge send off party. The mayor came out, you know, all these famous people from the face records and, you know, Yin Yang and Little John and Escape and, you know, all these massive, massive, you know, outcasts, all these huge artists in the hip hop and urban culture came out to give me a send off. There's no way I could go back to Orlando after that. So I was determined. So I, you know, called everyone that I knew and it wasn't a lot of people back then because I was only in New York for a year. How many people could you know in a year? So, you know, I, I found this guy who ran a club that was very well respected, a rock club in New York in the East Village called Brownies. He had told me about a guy from Wall Street who was setting up a record company and he was looking for a publicist. I hadn't really done PR. In Atlanta, I'd done local PR and some regional stuff, but I'd never actually done national traditional PR working with television, you know, radio and uh, print, et cetera. I'd never done it. So basically I walked in there, talked the talk, got myself the job. So that was another gig, an independent record label as director of publicity. Then from there, I went on to own and spearhead a record label which was a hip-hop label, which I was managing, doing the A&R, doing the marketing, doing the promotion, doing the tour press, consulting, booking, all of that. After that was over, I then went on to become a booking and talent buyer for a late night series at Public Theatre Joe's Pub. From there, I went on to become an international marketing director doing international at TVT Records, which had Towers of London, Tedra Moses, uh, Little John, Gil Scott Heron, Nine Inch Nails, all of that. Uh, and from there, uh, went on to do other things sort of as an entrepreneur doing, you know, again, lifestyle marketing, branding, you know, sort of doing things as I was going along, reinventing the wheel and just trying out new things and evolving as things were 
you know, coming into play and learning as I went. And then started the Bloom Effect, which I call a one-stop shop because I was able to use all of the practice, the best practices and all the qualities and all the, um, you know, the things that I'd learned along the way with the tasks and the titles and the positions that I had from marketing and, and booking and, and promotion and PR and development and consulting and all of that, I brought fast forward into this new entity, my baby, Blood, Sweat and Tears, called The Bloom Effect. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's a, it's an incredible story. And um, I just wonder if you could tell us a bit more about what it was like to set up your own record label. Oh, I can yeah. imagine that's a quite a challenging thing to do. And how do you acquire the artists as well as part of that process? Well, I was actually very fortunate because the first time I set up the record label, it was called 321 because I was already at the label doing PR called Zero Hour Records, independent label funded by a Wall Street guy. Now, if you recall, the reason I came to New York was Daniel Glass, who was the president of EMI Chrysalis. Daniel Glass and I stayed in touch. This is now the late 90s. And Daniel Glass, I phoned him up one day and he told me he just started a venture with a uh, major mogul called Doug Morris, and they were looking for talent and partnerships and new ventures to sign. So I told Daniel, oh, we're doing incredible things at Zero Hour. So they had a closed door 10 hour meeting, ended up doing a $10 million deal because of me. So my boss basically said to me, bravo, Fiona, you can have anything you want. What do you want from this uh, $10 million deal? What I should have said was 10%. I didn't have the business savvy. So all I said was Ray, who was my boss, Ray McKenzie, I would like to start my own hip hop label. I would like a record label. And he said, it's yours, do it. Here's the funding, go out, sign the artists. So I called it 321, because the label zero hour, 321 zero hour. And the first artist I signed, well, I first put out a compilation to put the label on the map to sort of launch the label. So I had a series of, you know, dance and EDM and hip hop and some uh, electronic stuff. And from there, signed my first hip hop artist called Black Alicious. And from there, was trying to sign another artist called Company Flow. But at the time, James Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch's son, had also his hand in a hip hop label that was competing with my label 321 called Raucous and they signed Company Flow. So then I went, went on to sign artists like Atmosphere, but that also got uh, messed up because my partner at the time didn't want me to sign Atmosphere because he said, oh, we already have another white rapper out there called Eminem. Meanwhile, this rapper wasn't a white guy, he was mixed race. Anyway, but that's how I was doing it, going out into the street, going out into the clubs, reading, having my ear into the ground, and really attuned with my finger on the pulse on going after cutting edge, underground, brand new artists never really before discovered. So that's kind of how I went. And then I started building a team around it. I realized I couldn't do it all myself. I had the money, had the budgets, could offer decent amounts of signing fees, $50,000 here, $100,000 for this, license the next album for $200,000. I got advances from distribution companies. So, and that's how I was able to uh, keep afloat. So we had deep pockets, pretty deep, not huge, but deep enough, raised about $5 million in addition to the funded stuff already on the table. And that was enabling me to keep going and then paying my staff. Wow. It's really impressive. And you've clearly been in the music industry for a, a long while now. Whole life. Anna, I always like to say, people always say to me, how did you get into this business? 
I always say I never got into this business. It chose me. I never decided I want to do this for a career. It fell into me. It fell on me. It fell on my lap. It was happenstance. It was like I was born into it, you know, born. I was born this way. Part of your DNA. My DNA, um, 100%. It's my blood, sweat, and veins. It's, it's, it's all here. It's just, it's, <laughs> yeah. And, and you must have seen the music industry change a lot over those years. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what those changes have looked like and yeah. maybe a little bit about the future direction as well? Yes, well, honestly, the biggest, biggest, biggest change is we no longer do music videos for $100 million. <laughs> Literally years ago, we would spend $10 million at a drop of an eye, no problems wow. on a one music video. Today, we might spend 10 grand on a video and that's high end. All my independent artists, we don't spend any more than two grand a video. So, and all that's called content now, by the way. So the biggest changes there in the music industry was back then music videos spending loads and loads of money, wasting all down the toilet, where you could be putting that money to other use. And then of course, music videos back then are now called content pieces, which is everything now from short form content to rich visual, to video, audio, you know, behind the scenes, all of that is content and we call content king. And even now music, which was once called music, now is called product and also now called content. So it's changed very much there. And it's also changed back then. It was a lot simpler, Hannah. I had a life back then. Yes, I worked my ass off. I was diligent and relentless and had, you know, major follow through and, you know, was dedicated and, and loyal and, and, you know, enthusiastic and, and nonstop my, my, you know, 124 seven constant. But at the end of it, I could actually go out and meet my friends for supper or go to a show. I didn't have a, a phone. I didn't have a smartphone. I didn't have social media. So back then we really had only very few mediums to deal with. We had television, we had print, we had radio, you know, music video outlets, which was really just at the time, VH1, MTV, BET. Today, we've got podcasts, we've got blogs, we've got social media, we've got mobile, we've got, you know, behind the scenes content, we've got, you know, short form, long form, we've got syndicated radio, we've got terrestrial radio, we've got pirate radio, we've got internet radio, we've got jukebox the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And there's millions and millions and millions of outlets today where back then there were way, way less and it was much more manageable to navigate the sea of, um, of, of industry that we were in. And the other thing is, Hannah, it's an equal entry uh, playing field now because literally anybody could just put their stuff up on Spotify tomorrow. I could, you could. Your daughter could, your son could, anybody could just play on a tablet, do a beat, boom, release the song. We didn't have those options back then. Back then you had to be signed. Mm -hmm. You had to have a recording contract, whether it was a major label contract or an independent contract. You didn't have another option. You would just have to wait it out and just be undiscovered and just practice in your bloody bedroom. And that was it and hope and pray. Yeah. So those are the big differences. That's really interesting. Do you think, uh, I mean, to your point about anybody being able to put something on Spotify, do you think, do you think that makes it harder or easier for talent to break through now? Harder, harder. A lot of people will argue me and say, listen, it's much easier because, you know, we have a shot at it and with our social media and our influence, we'll be able to crack it 
no way. The only way to crack it is if you've got a budget to spend on advertising with TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and all of that stuff. And when I mean a budget of advertising, I don't mean $200. I mean a few grand, which most independent unsigned artists don't have. And, you know, the clutter makes it much more difficult because it's harder for people in that are, you know, part of the, the, the gatekeepers, which I hate to say that we still have those gatekeepers, but we do. It's harder for them to decipher and get through that clutter. And it makes everyone else's jobs a lot more tedious and tiresome and, uh, you know, harder to, to get through and break through that, that noise, mm. you, you know, you know, rather than be able to pick up the phone and say, look, I sent you something yesterday. Can you listen to it? Now it's like, I'll listen to it, but I'll listen to it when I get to it, Fiona, because now I have, you know, 150 singles to go through in the next two days. <laughs> That's the difference. And that makes it tougher and harder in the landscape that we're in now. So, and it makes it an unenjoyable experience. It's not so pleasurable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you, you clearly have an eye for talent. Yes. And, um, you know, I wonder what makes somebody stand out from the crowd for you and and who have you nurtured who you have particular right. pride for, particularly proud of? Yes. So I've had, the, I like to say I've had a, a key eye for talent and can spot it from far away and it's very infinite raw stages. And probably because I'm a musician myself, if I didn't have that musical quality and talent innate inside me, probably would not be as savvy to it. And by the way, Hannah, it's not just music. I have the talent to spot art, you know, that's visual art, fine art. Uh, it could be dancing, that medium, you know, it, it, it could be, um, you know, accessories and fashionistas, whatever it is, you know, filmmakers, authors, I can spot them from miles away. And here it is. At the end of the day, it's, it's something. It's all about the brand. I always knew early on the brand. We didn't actually call it brand marketing back then because we weren't sure what that was. We just called that, um, you know, your aura. We called that your, you know, uh, your je ne sais quoi. Like it's something that you can't put a finger on, but it's that magic. It's that, that, that thing, that, that thing that you can't identify, but it, it's that it factor. That's something. You have that something, that pizzazz, that flavor. So for me, I have to see that straight away, whether it's you performing or whether it's me meeting you in a one-on-one -on -one conversation and I'm looking at you, I'm sussing you up and down going, you have it. Whether it's your personality, whether it's a spark, whether you're glowing, whether it's your style, your fashion, your clothing, your sensibilities, whatever that is, I can spot it and I see it and I feel it. And sometimes it's not always obvious, but if it's not obvious, then like I said, it's inside. I can draw it out of you. And the next thing you know is, wow, how did you know that Fiona? And I say, I felt it, I feel it, I feel it. And I feel it because I'm very passionate. I feel it because I'm very sensitive. I'm very attuned to, you know, culture and to, you know, influences and what shapes us. Um, and I hate to use the word cool, but I, I know cool, you know, I understand cool. Look, I'm not, I'm not the coolest, you know, I'm not covered in tats, I don't have the piercings, I don't have the fancy clothes. But again, it's not about your appearance, you know. It's not about your look. Cool is actually about your feel. It's about your presence. It's about your something. You know, it's that something. And, and, and I don't look cool. I'll never attest to that. But I, inside, I'm the, I'm not going to swear on this, but I am the mofo coolest in the room because I'm just, because it's my, because I'm eccentric. I'm different. I'm, you know, outspoken, but I'm creative, but I have a flair and I have dynamics and there's just something when there's something, it puts you in a different space and that different space is cool. It's hip. It's whatever it is. Right. 
So that's that. And some of the influences, oh my gosh, I mean, Chantal Martin, who I know you've interviewed. I mean, you know, I'm so proud of what she's done. I haven't seen her in years, but listen, I mean, my ex-boyfriend turned me on to her. She was coming in from Tokyo. She was a Brit like me, lived in Tokyo, coming to New York. She had this cool, you know, exhibition that she was wanting to get out there called Hidden Auras. He reached out to me, he said, can I put you in touch? I said, absolutely. She must've been 18 years old. And I produced her shows. I put her out in New York and then I took her to DC. And I want to say the rest is history. Now, is that all me? No, because I lost touch with her after that. But then I always have been proud, you know, from the outside looking in. And she knows because I come up in her socials from now and again. And I always chat on instant message and I, you know, talk about her in various things. So she knows I'm looking. She knows I'm, I'm seeing all the amazing things that she's done and all the accomplishments that she's made. So very proud of Chantal Martin. Very proud of Roxy Cottontail. Roxy um, was a huge party promoter. She's sort of a celebrity DJ. She's a fashionista. She's coming out with a very big book, which I'm actually in. She just interviewed me for. Also a documentary that I'm going to be in. So Roxy Cottontail is another one. MF Doom is another that I helped put on the map who ended up passing away uh, in December, but he's legendary hip hop artist that has murals in every country, probably over 2000 tributes to MF Doom. So very proud of what he created and his legacy. Other artists like Anthony David, who I put on, a soul artist, Avery Sunshine, um, Crosby, who's a clockmaker, who's also doing NFTs, who's also minting coins. Oh my God. I mean, there's so many, Hannah. And then I have a lot of people that uh, I've been influenced by, you know, big people like McCoy Tyner, Richard Branson, obviously, you know, Chris Blackwell, Martin Luther King, Yo-Yo Ma, Jimmy Iovine, um, Daniel Glass, who was the, white, the one who brought me to New York, um, Public Enemy, Steve Jobs, Kevin Lyman, who did the Warp Tour, Dave uh, Allen, who's a educator in music tech, so I have a lot of influences that I've been admired, that I've admired along the way, uh, and very impressed by. And really, no mentors. Maybe just one mentor. I've mentored loads of people, like Sharon Carpenter, you know, Roxy, and many, many, many others. But the one mentor that sticks out is a publishing guru uh, that's built a publishing empire called Steed Media Group. His name is Munson Steed. He's gone on to become a multimillionaire. Uh, in the urban publishing world. I met him in Atlanta when I was a nobody. He had a small production company called BG Swing, Blues, Groove and Swing, and brought in artists like Wynton Marcellus, Betty Carter, all jazz musicians. And he brought me on, you know, I was the tender age of 22, 23, brought me on to do his PR. He was a nightmare, Hannah, but I learned so much from his hustle, his business savvy, his strategy, and his nonstop perseverance. And all of those qualities have basically soaked into everything that I do today. I ooze with all of those traits. Wow, that's amazing. It's like a who's who of the music industry. Um, and we're very grateful to you in particular for Chantal Martin and Sharon, who, as you know, have been on the podcast. And I right. love the fact that you um, sign off your signature block with one of Chantal's um, phrases. Right. If, if life doesn't give you a door, climb out of a window, which is brilliant. Which I've had to climb out many windows over the years. 
just physical like, and metaphorical or right it's like kissing a lot of frogs too because I haven't found my significant other he's out there somewhere Hannah I'm sure of it <laughs> um and you've worked across a real diverse range of musical genres mm. I just wondered if you could tell us what what does diversity in the industry mean to you and and how do you play that forward in your work Yes, great question. I have always come up with the rule of one school, really, for me. Duke Ellington said it the best. He said, there are only two genres, good and bad. Duke Ellington said this. I work with the good. There's only two genres, okay? Good and bad. I represent all good music. I came up as a classically trained concert pianist. I was a radio programmer in jazz music. Then I became a wildly popular hip hop DJ. Then a rock enthusiast working with, you know, bands like Simple Minds and the Zombies and the Sherlock's and all these, you know, Gary Newman, et cetera. So for me, it's not about genre. It's just about quality and what moves me. And I just love all kinds of music. And with all that, it's given me the ability to have such a colorful lifestyle because coming up as a young kid, I had diverse friends my whole life. I'm a Jewish Brit, right? Coming up in London. Some of my best friends were from Zimbabwe, <clears throat> were from India, you know, so they were Hindu, they were Muslim, you know, they were Shinto, they were Christian, Catholic. It didn't matter. I had friends from all over and that's really all I knew. Diversity was literally my middle name uh, coming up in this world. Um, and I practiced it my whole entire career, community building and community building, being able to weave in and out of these different niches and different, you know, sectors and doing it, doing it effortlessly, you know, effort, I can't even say that word, effortlessly uh, and, and comfortably and genuinely. At the end of the day, Hannah, it's about being authentic. It's about being true to yourself. And if you come across authentic and natural and genuine in your approach to everything that you do, be it business or personal, that exudes and that shines. And that is where people want to be around you, want to work with you, want to be your friend and want to just be on your journey. And that's just really my mantra. That's it, that's it. It's not rocket science. I have to say it's your authenticity and your incredible energy that is the most attractive. And I know that people can sense that even just listening to this uh, interview. Um, yeah. You've you said it yourself. You've supported hip hop bands. You've worked <laughs> in jazz, classical music, indie rock. What do you listen to to relax? What's your oh my what's your go to music genre? Oh, I listen to a lot of ambient stuff. I listen to house music. I listen to some dancehall. Now, dancehall doesn't relax me. Dancehall gets me pumped and gets me excited and wired. So I'll do sort of workout routines at home to some dancehall music. And I listen to classical. Listen, I still, it's come full circle. I still listen to the Rachmaninoff third, or I'll listen to Brahms violin concerto, or Bruch, or, or Mendelssohn, or Tchaikovsky, or Cole Porter, or Chick Corea, or Weather Report, or Thelonious Monk, or Fat Swallow, or Sonny Rollins, and oh, it, 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 or the Beatles, or the Who, you know, or Bjorg, or I, I mean, there's just not one style of music and there's just not one two thing that I listen to it really just depends on my mood and where I am in my place whether at home or on the go or you know in a chair at the dentist wherever it is so yeah um and finally uh you um have obviously worked in one of those industries where I imagine you picked up a huge number of 
anecdotes and maybe it's a bit cheeky to put you on the spot but any any final anecdotes or thoughts particularly from your time in New York oh god anecdotes well actually (laughs) oh anecdotes there's so many anecdotes I mean I do have one thing I always like to tell people because I learned a lot from being in New York and I learned a lot from uh, meetings especially and wanting to impress people from the get-go what I learned was you know it's one thing to show up but it's really another thing to show up early. So I always say my philosophy is to be on time, you must arrive early. If you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, you're screwed. (laughs) (laughs) So early does it, early does it. And you know, as far as anecdotes go, I mean, I've got loads. I I, I wouldn't even know where to start. I mean, you know, I was called by Rockefeller, you know, Jay-Z's label. Uh, Damon Dash was running Rockefeller at the time. They were scouting publicists, you know, and I was excited that they even called me. They were looking for a publicist. They asked me to come in for an interview. So I thought, okay, great. I'll come into the interview. I had no clue, Hannah, that I'd be one of like 50 publicists in the bloody room, all crammed together, waiting to be called. It was like a cattle call. It was like an audition. It was like a a call time for, you know, casting on a TV show or or, or even being in a video. I'd never seen anything like it, but I I waited for hours. Hannah, there were people that walked out that were like, screw this. I'm not waiting on this. I've got work to do. I've got a life. I've got a career. I was like, I'm determined. I'm determined to meet Jay-Z. I'm determined to see what Rockefeller is talking about. Even if I don't take the job, even though I don't get the job, I want the experience. So for me, the anecdote always is, you know, go for that experience. Keep an open mind. If opportunities come to you, don't be so quick to say no. Always jump on an opportunity. I think my biggest regret, and I know they always say not to have regrets, but my biggest regret is to not be as much of an opportunist. I find that opportunists are the ones that are really successful in this world. Some of my family members are very successful. Why? They are opportunists. I've never been that. I've missed so many opportunities. Thank God I took up, took up on Jay-Z Rockefeller, but if we had two more hours of this podcast, I'd be able to tell you other great anecdotes, just like Jay-Z, even bigger that I missed out on. So go for it. Don't let it hold you back. Don't say no. Listen to what it is that is involved. Jump at the opportunity if you can and try it, take it, because everything is an experience. Fiona Bloom, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. You've had such an impressive career and continue to do so. I want you to make my Spotify playlist go forward. And thank you so much for coming on Brits and the Big Apple. Oh my God, I'd be honoured, Hannah. Absolutely honoured. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.